Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Passage for today starts in Genesis chapter 12, verse 5. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they'll kill me, but they will let you live. Say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Yeah, you guys can have a seat. (laughs) Oh, Um, Okay, I'm going to put up three statements over the next few minutes here, and I'm going to ask you to think about, maybe out loud you can respond to this on a scale of 1 to 10, how strongly you agree or disagree with these statements. So like 1 would be like, nah, I don't really think so, and 10 would be like, oh yeah, I totally get that, okay? Makes sense, scale, makes sense. So this is the first statement, following Jesus is hard. 10, we had any other numbers? Did I hear a 3? 3? 8? may depend on where you're at in the moment, you know, could be a lot of things going on. Um, Do you feel a little guilty saying it's hard? I do, just a little bit, Um, but it it is difficult some days, and and does it feel like some days it might be easier not following Jesus than it is following Jesus? Can you say that in church? Okay, Um, I... uh, the grass always looks greener on the other side of the fence. There's a book, and I forgot it in the back, um, but a book that was the beginning of like the self-help movement was called The Road Less Traveled by a guy named Scott Peck, and the very first line of it is, life is difficult, and I have an old copy of it, Then this week, I thought it must be my parents, so I looked in the front, and it's my mom's, and so mom, if you've been looking for your copy of The Road Less Traveled, I've had it for probably 30 years now. Uh, but he goes through this thing about how, like, that's it. You need to know that. Life is difficult. And once you accept that life is difficult, it's not difficult anymore, which I don't really agree with. I just, but it does help to get it off the table. Life is more difficult if you have a hard time admitting that life is difficult. Um, and Scott Pack, interestingly, was not a Christian, I think, when he wrote the book, and he became one. He's a psychiatrist. He later wrote a book called The People of the Lie, where he talked about just dealing with certain situations in his practice and how he became in the objective, he became to believe in the objective reality of evil. <laughs> like there's something beyond us that is just plain, flat evil. 
Um, but when he wrote this, I'm not sure that he is. And so life is hard. I think life is hard whether you follow Jesus or whether you don't follow Jesus. And most of us started following Jesus because life got hard, and we thought, I'm not doing this right. And then Jesus seemed to do it right, and he's more than we are, so maybe Jesus knows better than we do. And so then we start following Jesus, thinking that following him would be easier than not following him, but then you follow him, and then it's not quite as easy as thought it was. And Jesus sells us on this, you know, come to me all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly heart. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And that's true, you know, but sometimes it doesn't really feel like that's true. Um, And so you follow Jesus for a while, and it's still hard, and the grass looks greener on the other side of the fence, and the other side of the fence is not following Jesus, and following Jesus can be hard. Okay, second statement, following Jesus is harder than I thought it would be. So if you can get back to before you were following Jesus and what you thought it might be like to follow Jesus, a scale of 1 to 10, following Jesus is harder than I thought it would be. Anybody? (laughs) 12. Um, yeah, I think that's probably a good assessment of it. Harder in ways that I didn't think it was, that you could just couldn't, you couldn't know what it was going to be like. And here's my last one, following Jesus is harder than it ought to be. Twelve. Twelve. <laughs> um, that gets down to different different layers of this. So last week we started this series and we see Abraham uh, make a decision to follow uh, God's call for his life. Um, And so God says to him, you know, go to a land that I'll show you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you. And it says Abraham went Uh, He decided to follow that call for his life. And I read some passages at the end of that from Jesus and what he says to to, um, his followers and his disciples. And, you know, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. But if you try and save your life, you'll lose it. And whoever leaves, like mother and father and homes and lands, like really similar language and in similar tone to what he calls Abraham to. And so I don't think, I mean, part of the reason we're doing this series is Abraham shows, or God shows himself to be right here in the first part of the Bible is so intensely personal and relational, and so what does that look like for us? And then the calls sound s- similar, what Jesus has called us to and what God's called Abraham to. And so Abraham went, Abram, it's not Abraham yet, Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot, his nephew, went with him. Abraham was 75 when he departed from Haran. He took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they gathered, and then the people they'd acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And um, last week, I went through this, like, he's born in Ur, and he's in Haran, and those are like the New York and Los Angeles, big, huge trading centers in their day. And then he goes to Canaan, the land of Canaan, which is a little bit like Anger. Uh, now, John's like, no, people like Anger, they're moving there. So maybe you have to go further out. Maybe it's like done, you know. So I don't know. But they're just going someplace that people don't go a lot. And so if you're, if you're Abram and Sarai in that, like, how, do you, how are you feeling about things. When God calls you to this, and you've been like, all right, let's go. How are you feeling? Like, I bet he's excited. You know, when you make that decision, you kind of cross the line. You maybe you've been thinking about it, and then boom, you're like, but you're like, let's go, you know? Um, the time in my life, in my mid-20s, where um, 
you know, I had, I had been kind of toying with God, keeping him at arm's length. I had some questions that weren't answered. I was living my own life. I got my own life to where I thought it I should be, and it didn't, it, I just didn't have peace about it and felt like, I don't know, this is not right. And so I went back to God and said, hey, I got some real big questions about whether you're even there or not. And so what, here's what I'm going to do. For six months, I'm just going to do whatever you tell me to do. And if after six months, I'm not like more clear on those questions, I'm probably going to go do something else. And so that's probably not the best plan, but that was my plan at the time, you know. And so I broke up with a girl and I couldn't break up with my job, but I really changed my attitude towards my job because my ego was wrapped up in my job and I engaged this church community. And six months later, I was really like different. I was a different guy, but it was like a, you know, let's do, let's go, let's do this. And so that's how I imagine Abram and his wife being when they go from Haran and they got to go south into the land of Canaan. And so he doesn't know where he's going because God just said, go to land that I'm going to show you. And so I don't know what that's like. Like you just keep going until God says, okay, we're here. That's, that's how it's presented, you know. So they came to the land of Canaan and Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the Oak of Morah. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And so um, in the Canaanites is... is is uh, meaningful. So last week I talked about um, the first 11 chapters before Abraham and just how God, we keep screwing things up and God keeps like not giving up on us. And so at the beginning, there's the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And so they're looking in their genealogies for the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Well, Abram is from the line of Shem, so he's in the seed of the woman, but Canaan is in the line of Ham, and so he's the seed of the serpent, and now the Canaanites in the, are in the land. So in a big picture story, the Canaanites are here, and they're winning. In a little picture story, if I'm Abram, and I, I'm, God's going to give me a land and make me a great nation, I'm kind of thinking there aren't people already in the land. And so when he gets there, and it says, and they went to the land of Canaan, and at that time there were Canaanites in the land, I think if I'm Abraham, I'm a little bit disappointed at that point, you know? Like, I might be raising my hand, like, oh, I got a question. This might be a dumb question, but who are these people? And, like, am I, are they supposed to be here? Am I supposed to be here? Like, if you found out tomorrow that your great aunt died and you inherited her house, you know, and so you, and you went to find this house and you got to the house and then you went in the house and your cousin Eddie is living there and he's a total slob, You'd be like, did I read this right? Is this, am I supposed to live in the house with my cousin or did I, did I get something wrong? And I think that's where Abram is. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, okay, this is it. To your offspring, I will give this land. And I feel like that's him confirming, this is it. This is the land I was talking about. And it says, so he built there an altar to the Lord who'd appeared to him. And so, he, and so that he's doing the thing. You know, and it says it's the Oak of Mora or the Terebinth of Mora, which I didn't know this before, but a bunch of people said this was a place of Canaanite worship. And so Abram, this is a bold move for him in a place of Canaanite worship. It's kind of like what they said that we've done with Christmas and Easter, which I think is true, but like they used to be, pay, pay, December 25th was a ritual for some type of a pagan sacrifice. And so we, we made it Christmas, you know, and we did the same with Easter. And that's kind of what Abram is doing here when he takes this place at the Oak of Mora and sacrifices. And it says, from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel in the west, and I don't know how to say that, Ai in the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So he does it again. He goes further and he builds another altar, and then he journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. 
these, just touch of Bible geekery here, but these three places are the same places that are mentioned when his grandson Jacob leaves because he's scared of Esau and goes back to Haran to get a wife and comes back with a couple wives and a whole bunch of kids. And then they go back across the Jordan, and these are the places that he goes. And when Joshua comes out of Egypt, these three places are the places that he goes to. So it's like God continually repeats stuff and says, the story that I'm writing for Abraham is a part of a bigger story that I'm going to write for you too. So, so then it says, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourner there, for the famine was severe in the land. So we'll stick with the famine. We're still in Canaan. We haven't gone down to Egypt yet. We've got some Canaanites in the land, and now we have no food. And the narrator repeats, for the famine was severe, which is repetition is the way of saying, like, this is a legit problem here. And so you've moved your family because God told you to, and there are people in the land that he gave you, and now you can't find any food. Following Jesus can be hard sometimes, you know? Like, I'm, I'm kind of parsing this. He's following the Lord. It, you know, we're following Jesus, but following Jesus is hard sometimes. And sometimes when you're following him, you just get to a place where it's not, it's just super not clear what to do. So um, when we started the church, uh, we, had a, we were part of another church, and we had a ministry in that church, and we, when it was, it was just getting to the place where we're like, I think we're supposed to start a church. There were three guys involved in that ministry that I, that I knew were going to go into full-time ministry, which was um, a little bit odd, rare, you know. And so one of them was a guy named Brian Gresham, and he, was on, he went on staff with uh, Samaritan's Purse, and I think he's still on staff with Samaritan's Purse. Another one was Jonathan Diggs, and Jonathan ended up going to Asbury Seminary and is pastor at a church, like a Nazarene church, up in the Chesapeake area of Virginia. And then the other guy was Jason, who's the guy that I started the church with, and he was on staff with Athletes in Action I think at the time where we were getting this stuff going, and I really thought, like, God, man, there's three guys here, like, and we're going to do this, and so it was one of these guys that we're going to do this with them, and Jason ended up being the guy, and so I had, when I was in grad school, um, started a company with a guy that was a couple years older than me that I knew from undergrad, but he was a lot like Jason, and so I thought in my mind, and I still think this, like, God had this experience over here with this guy who, um, you know, we got along great. And so it prepared me for this experience. Like, he was repeating the thing, and, you know, it was great. And so then, and then we, and so we started the church. And this is 2006 we started the church. That's the same year that I found out for the first time I had to have open heart surgery to replace the valve that I just had re-replaced a couple months ago. And that was the thing, you know, you're getting ready to start a church, and God says you need to have open heart surgery about seven weeks before you start the church. And I'm I'd, you know, I pray, God, if you don't want me to start a church, just, you don't have to kill me. You can just tell me that you don't want me to start a church because I don't need this, you know, like, that's fine. And, and, but, but what happened out of that was I did that and that was good. That was a good experience. I mean, it really, it was the same time you're playing a church. And then um, the housing market in 2006 was smoking hot, like almost as hot as it was a year or two ago. People weren't quite writing letters to you telling you why you should sell your house to them. That was the whole thing, you know. But it was still like, especially downtown, block by block. And Jason and his wife had a condo that they could rent out, and then they wanted to get downtown. And so they just wanted a place to crash because they figured in a few weeks we're going to find a place and we're going to move out. And we were having open, I was having open heart surgery, and so we thought, well, it would be good to have an extra set of hands around the house. 
And, we, and, and I had preached about living in community and how it's good to live in community because your relationships all get a little bit more authentic when you got to live them out in front of other people. And so we lived in an 1,800-square-foot split level in Cary with a spare bedroom. And we thought, just come live in our basement, you know? And we had three little kids at the time. Johnny wasn't here yet. And so they did. And so they came and moved in in August. I had surgery in September. We planted the church in October. And I, th- I did think, this is, there's probably a reason people don't do this. Like, this is probably a bad idea. And so I actually said, like, if after a few weeks any one of the four of us adults thinks this was a really bad idea, then no hard feelings, but you're going to have to get out of my house and find someplace else to live, you know? But we really liked it. I mean, it was fun, right? Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> and, uh, and, we, and so people, everybody would come over on Sunday nights before we started the church, after the thing, and we'd watch Grey's Anatomy. And so that show was still on back. That show's been on forever, you know? And um, it was just fun. And then, they, and then and then we liked it. And then we started the church, and then there was a guy at church. Well, there was a house downtown, and um, east of downtown. And a buddy of ours from our old church, a carpenter, was working on the house. And I went to lunch with him and picked him up the house and walked through the house. 1925, craftsman style, 3,000 square foot, huge house. At the time, I said, big enough for two families to live in. It's a great place. And they were redoing, redoing the whole thing. And then I found out that the guy that had come with us to start the church, who was keeping our books, who was an accountant with the CPA firm, also did real estate and was flipping that house. And so that was his house, but it was under contract. But then the contract fell through. And so then a family, it's probably January, from our church was going to go look at the house to see if they wanted to buy the house. And I kind of wanted to see how the house turned out. And the house was in, is eight blocks east of downtown. So there's Oakwood, and then there's past Oakwood, when, in, for what we affectionately called Oak Hood. Because it was crazy. The street down from us, it was Idlewild, and it was perfect because people were idle and they were wild. People were shooting their guns off all the time and burning stuff down, like houses and stuff. Um, it, but it was, I mean, but it was, there was something enticing about the whole thing. And so I drove, I went to see the house after church, drove home, called Jason, he's watching football at our house. And I was like, we should buy a house together? And I said it just like that. And, and so we all thought we should, though. Like, it had been six months in our house, everything was great, and we're starting a church, and it's great. And the guy that owned the house is like, oh, man, that'd be awesome. We're like, we can't pay two mortgages, and we got to sell our house, and and so he's like, I'll rent it to you for the construction loan until you sell it, until you sell your house, and then I'll sell you this house. And the, we're like, that's cool, but we can't do that. So the, the Gores agreed to pay the construction loan so, until our house sold. And so our house, I'm like, but our house could take like six months to sell, you know? So this is like the big delta in what's going to happen here. And so then there was a lady at church who was a real estate agent, and she and my wife got together and said, we should put the house on Craigslist. And I was like, no, no, we shouldn't because there's like seven people living in our 1,800 square foot house. That's like 250 square foot per people, and it's a mess. And it looks like a bomb went off about every seven minutes in our house, you know? And so that's a bad idea. But to get you off my back, we'll go ahead and do it. And so I put it on Craigslist. I don't think the picture uploaded even. This is a Friday morning. Friday afternoon, we got a phone call. Saturday morning, a couple came and looked at it. Sunday after church, the realtor called me, and we negotiated in like five minutes on the way home. And so our house sold on Craigslist in 20, 48 hours. That's never happened before. You know, this is 2007 now. Um, and that's crazy. And so, like, if God wanted to communicate something, I thought that's where he could um, communicate it. And it feel like he did communicate it. And it's like, go for it. And so we went for it. And we thought we'll live there for two years because who could take this for more than two years? 
I think we were right about that. And, and then the housing market, when we were signing papers on the house, we heard this in the background someplace. We didn't know what it was, but it was the housing bubble bursting out in the ether, and like the market just tanked. And so after two years, we couldn't sell the house, and then there were more kids. And it turns out that um, planting a church together, like our personalities were complementary, but planting a church together and owning a house together is probably a little bit too much for a relationship. And so things got hard. Things got hard. And those, the last couple years, we ended up having the house together for four and a half, five years. Everybody had more kids. Just stressful. That was a stressful time in life. And honestly, two or three of the hardest years of, of my life. And so I've got quite a bit of sympathy for Abraham in this situation of like, no, I'm, I'm exactly where God wants me. I've done exactly what God has told me to do, but it is not clear at all what is supposed to happen next. Have you been there? Yeah. Sometimes you do exactly what Jesus tells you to do, and it doesn't look to you like it's working, and you have no idea what to do next. And I think that's where Abraham is. And when he was about to enter Egypt... He said to Sariah's wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance. That's a, that's a good line. Um, kind of sounds like he's buttering her up, you know. If I was Sarai, I'd be like, all right, what's what the other shoe's going to drop here? And when the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife, and then they'll kill me. I just, he sounds scared to death in this situation, you know. And they'll let you live, but I'm going to die. Uh, and I don't know, like maybe that's completely legitimate, maybe that's absolutely what would have happened. Maybe Abraham's just way up into his head and making stuff up. Have you been there? Uh, I've been there, and we're like the worst possible thing that could happen is exactly what's going to happen every time. Um, and I don't know where her head's at, like it's a severe hap- famine, severe famines don't happen overnight, so there's a long time to wonder if they're in the right place. I just imagine there's, there's some conversations like, are you sure you went the right direction? Like, did you ask somebody for directions? Are we in the right place? Are you sure about that? Um, one commentator just said the famine exposed his heart. Uh, and it drew out the fear. Uh, there's a pastor, I remember listening to years ago, and he took his coffee cup and he's like, when you want to know what's in that cup, you knock the cup and whatever's in the cup spills out of the cup. Um, which happens every week here because we had coffee stains all over our carpet, y'all. I'm just kidding. That was a little passive-aggressive shot. I'm just sorry. I'm just sorry. Uh, You find out what you get in a situation like that, and then you find out how much work is left to do on God making you the person that he created you to be in the first place. And, uh, And I don't know what he was supposed to do. Like, he could stay in the land and die. You know, I I believe God would have fed him somehow if he just stayed in the land. He could go back to Haran. That's probably what I would have done. It's like, well, we'll spend some time with family and friends in Haran, and then we'll come back in a few months when the famine's over. But for some reason, and I can see why that's a bad option, because if you go back there, maybe you just want to stay there and you never come back. Egypt is probably last on my list, but that's what they decide to do, especially if you think people might kill you. But that's where he decides to go. And then he says... And this is, so please say that you're my sister, 
um, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. And I put the please there. It's not in the ESV. It just says, say you're my sister. But that kind of sounds like, just say you're my sister. But, but a lot of the people that I read said, when you look at it in the Hebrew, it says, pray, say that you're, please, pretty please say that you're my sister. Like, her voice matters in this situation. She has a voice in the story. She's not just property at her behest. He's going to sleep with Hagar in a few chapters. We'll look at that. God is going to address her personally. She's not just furniture. And, um, and so he asked her to do this. Unsaid in it is that the men that think she's beautiful are going to want to sleep with her, and Abraham's basically letting this happen. And I'm not a girl, so I don't know how girls feel about this, but if you're a girl, I'm sure there's a certain way that you feel about this. There was a movie um, years ago. There was a movie called Indecent Proposal. Does anybody remember that? Um, it was, there's a young, good-looking couple. It was Demi Moore and Woody Harrelson coming off of his cheers. It's not his Hunger Game days. Uh, it's his cheers days. And so he's a good-looking young guy and this young couple, but they're broke. And so um, an old, rich guy who was Robert Redford, who was Robert Redford was like the good-looking guy back in the day. He was kind of like the Brad Pitt of his day, but now Brad Pitt is probably not Brad Pitt anymore. So who's the new Brad Pitt? I need a name. Tom Holland, okay. My daughter's laughing. Okay, so t- Tom Holland, but he's old and good-looking, and so he offers Woody Harrelson a million dollars if he can sleep with his wife, Demi Moore. And so that was a movie, because it's kind of a, you know, like, what are they going to do? There's some dynamics in there, and that's the situation that he's in. I don't know how she feels and what this does to their relationship. But sometimes things get really, really difficult, and the solutions aren't obvious, and um, God's going to be clear on this. Was it not a good decision on Abram's part? But he's got to do something, and doing nothing is still doing something. And the stuff doesn't happen as fast as the passage makes it seem. Like it's a couple verses that we can read in a few seconds. But this took weeks or months or possibly years for them to get to this place. And so I wonder, like, how many nights... Because God told him to go somehow, and then God came to him, appeared to him, and said, this is the land, you're in the right place. And how many nights did he, like, stare at the stars, you know, around a fire in front of his tent, saying, hey, can you come back and tell me what to do now? Like, did I make that up? Are you still there? Um, I wonder how many times he and his wife talk about whether or not it was the right decision to leave Haran in the first place. I wonder how many times he rehearses in his head this line to his wife, would you please say that you're my sister? So I just think it takes a long time, and it's hard. It's hard. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Now, I don't even think Abram saw this coming. Like, it's not just some dude's. It's Pharaoh. It is the king of Egypt that is the one into whose house. And he later says, I took her as my wife. And for her sake, Pharaoh dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys. Apparently the gender of the donkeys is important, but not the camels. I don't know. I don't know. It's a question for me. I ask questions like this. And I don't think he saw this coming, like Pharaoh's going to give me a bunch of stuff. And I imagine, like, he could feel validated, but he could also just feel really dirty at this point. 
And then God intervenes, and it says, The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. I can't say that word, because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So God comes in, and they don't say what the plagues are, but Pharaoh knows this, isn't, this is not normal, and this is not right. And somehow, God communicates to Pharaoh that this is tied to Sarai. And so Pharaoh called Abram and said, what, what is this you've done to me? Why didn't you just tell me that she was your wife, man? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Get out of here. <laughs> and that's like, if you're Abram, do you feel really, really dumb? Like I was worried about this stuff for all this time and it like, would have been okay if I just told the truth? I, maybe. I'm not sure I buy that if there aren't plagues that Pharaoh has the same attitude. Like if he doesn't see the power of God and God's intention and will in this, that Pharaoh's just some nice guy that only takes single women into his harem. I don't buy that. Uh, so I don't know. And God doesn't tell us. What we know is he intervened. And he took care of it. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Keeps the stuff, gets his wife back, safe passage back to the land of Canaan. So, following Jesus is indeed difficult sometimes. If you're in a situation where you just don't know how you got there and you don't know what you're supposed to do, but you're pretty sure that God brought you there, I think that's par for the course. God promises Abram two things, really, a land and a nation, a family that's going to become a nation. There are big obstacles to both those things. There's Canaanites in the land, and his wife is barren, and it's going to take a long time for God to clear those things out. I don't know what it is for you, like just, but it's probably common things. You get married to who God wants you to get married to, and then marriage is hard. Can I get an amen? Because you can't fix it or yourself or them, and God is sanctifying both of you and using marriage to do it. And sometimes that just seems really hard, even though you're doing exactly what God told you to do. You start following God with your money and your stuff and your generosity, and, and then bills come in you don't expect, and you're not sure what to do with it. You have kids or adopt kids, and you don't have enough time, and you don't know how to manage it, and things just get crazy, and you're not. God does not make it immediately clear what you're supposed to do, and I think that's normal Christian life stuff, and God's going to knock the cup for you. He knows what's in it, but for you to figure out what's in it, um, that he needs to, to work out of it. Uh, Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, it's what comes out of him. And it's in those hard situations where we find out what's in us. And honestly, like, the Bible gives us so much freedom to pray and just to be brutally honest with God. And for me, sometimes it just takes those situations in order to be brutally honest with God. One commentator said, suffering is a necessary part of the pilgrim's perfection. Were God's blessings given without suffering, the saint would confound morality with pleasure. Saints would serve God for what they could get out of it. God saves his people from selfishness and develops such virtues as faith, hope, patience, and character. And he does that in situations like this. Second thing, you're not always going to do a great job of following Jesus. Like you are going to screw it up. Um, sometimes because you don't know what to do. Sometimes because you don't know the thing that you know is what you're supposed to do and you just don't want to. Um, sometimes because you're just ignoring God altogether, you're going to screw it up. And, and the big thing I see in this situation is that God is going to be gracious to us. 
And so, so he screws it up, but you cannot screw up God's plans because God knows what he's doing, and he's so gracious with Abram. Abram does the wrong thing. Whether or not he knew it, we don't know. What the right thing is, we don't know. Um, it's clear this was the wrong thing, and without us knowing that anyone asked for this, God steps in and fixes it and moves in Pharaoh's heart in a way that no one could have expected, and then he blesses Abram and Sarai on the way out of the situation, and that is God's grace towards him. It takes a really long time to really trust God. Like in my mind, this is, goes to the garden and the knowledge of the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And like we just want to grab that for ourselves and God wants us to depend on him. And so it's just situations like this where we cling to him and we're desperate for him and we get in a habit of seeking him are the ones that develop the type of trust that he made us for. Um, and we're, we're farther away than we think we are probably. But we can't, like, even though we're going to screw it up, we can't screw it up so bad that it's not going to fix it. And it's not on us. One, one guy said that it's in fa times of failure that you find out the depth to which you understand God's grace for you. So we did this in the series in Romans. I, I talked about this a lot. How, like, we're made for law. And so we think it's, I'm going to do... I'm going to be a good boy or girl, and then God's going to pat me on the head and like me. It's like about our performance. And then there's grace, and Jesus comes in and says, you couldn't perform well enough, so I'm going to die on a cross for you and rise from the dead, and then I will stand in the place of your imperfections. But we think it's grace, like he did his part, but I still have to do my part. And that's how we just, because we're so law. And then we're like, that doesn't work because Jesus, why would he die on the cross if I still have to do my part? So he did all of it for me, but now I have to get my act together. So it's grace and then law, like get your act together. And then the longer you go, it's just grace. And just grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And this guy said that when you fail, it either drives you towards, oh, right, it's always been grace. It's just grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And so you get closer to God. Or when you fail, you still think it's law and that you've screwed it up and it creates distance between you and God. And I thought that was accurate. And so I don't know what it is in your mind. Like, I want to believe that God, the Holy Spirit, has put in on our minds areas where we have failed in the past that we haven't gotten through or just we can reappreciate the grace of God or areas where we're failing right now. That he wants to offer you grace in the midst of it and draw you to himself. 